0: and welcome back to another episode of the Ways of Working podcast. I am your host, Adam Thackeray, and today we have Marilyn Struthers joining us. Marilyn is the principal of M Struthers & Co., where her work currently includes facilitating coaching, organizational development and planning for strategic initiatives that support sustainability and leadership in social change organizations. She has more than 40 years in many fields of social change organizing and Marilyn has often used her landscape view to reflect on how the sector is working and then to document those dramatic changes in both financing and collaborative practices as a writer and researcher. Marilyn was the inaugural John C. Easton Eaton Chair in Social Innovation and Entrepreneurship at Ryerson University. Before joining the university, she spent 14 years as a funder with the Ontario Trillium Foundation, making provincial and national investments in Change the World organizations, enabling new approaches, networks, and collaboration to build the social sector's capacity to innovate. She's worked in many grassroots community organizations working on women's and First Nations issues, mental health, and the Arts and Children's Mental Health often with a focus on rural issues. She has lived and worked on the shores of Georgian Bay since 1974. Uh, Marilyn is very active in the Georgian Bay region and and, and other areas of the province and abroad. And so we're very excited to have her in today. Uh, It's a very interesting conversation um, and I think it's very important um, given not only the state, you know, we're in for COVID, but as we move forward to being a more sustainable, Uh, Society Uh, I think it's very important this conversation and so I was very excited to to have her on today So without further ado, I'd like to welcome Marilyn Struggles All right, so uh, Marilyn, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, Amazing to have you on board uh, I'm very excited about uh, this particular episode because it's kind of a new exploration and, and learning for, for myself as well as the ways of working podcasts. We focused mostly on enterprise in the past and you know things that are applicable to, to working in the enterprise world or, or the you know that, that side of the business world, whereas we're we're exploring a, you know a number of different topics today. So so welcome and thank you for joining us today. Thank you. So so you're a longtime residence of Grey Bruce County, which is here in uh, Ontario, Canada. Uh, for those of you listening not within the province, um, and you become, you know, how did you become involved with the social sector and and specifically social finance? Like, like walk us through a little bit at a high level how you, you know, came to become involved with this. Sure, sure. I actually, as
1: a young person, a young hippie, I guess in those days, I went to school and I studied community development um, in a, a rare and unusual program that was canceled immediately afterwards. Oh. Uh, <laughs> and we're really looking at how communities organize, how yeah. people work together to change the landscape in which they live. And, you know, I've done many things since then, you know, university degrees and, and whatnot, but still, that is what I do. I work with people who want to change the landscapes in which they live. And that has taken me through um, the days when, you know, we, we called ourselves the nonprofit sector. Took mm-hmm. a while to figure out that actually was a sector, but you know, if you think about government, business, and the nonprofit sector, yep, and everybody in it pretty much was a volunteer. Uh, and in those days, back now into the '70s, when I first moved up here into to Gray County, um, you. It was a time when you could make a pitch to government for something in your community that needed to change. Mm -hmm. And if you got really good at needs assessment, you could demonstrate what the need was and how that would change. Government, you could count on um, funding what we would now call a pilot. And if you evaluated, tested out well, then this would become a social service. So that was part of the whole social service build through Mm -hmm. the 1970s and 1980s. Um, and really, the, the, the nonprofit sector started to gain uh, bench strength, really, in relation to government sector and business, as uh, the whole idea of social well-being started to take place in people's minds, and it got clear that business and government both worked, worked um, in some ways around areas of people's well-being. And then in the 1990s, that came pretty much to a crashing halt um, as governments began to, I suppose, in in neoliberal frameworks, began to cut uh, and alter the way uh, money was flowing to the social social sector, the nonprofit sector. And what happened really fast over between the early 90s and sort of mid-2000s, is the social sector had to find other ways of working. Mm -hmm. It could no longer rely on government funding in the same way. I know this part really well because I was actually a researcher and writer on government funding practice. And, you know, I went from the foundation I was working in to the federal government to help them fix their funding practices. And that was, you know, a complete non-starter. None of that occurred. (laughs) Well, (laughs) despite all our wonderful recommendations and good thinking. And so the nonprofit sector adapted because that's what people do when they're working for well being in the landscapes in which they lived. It adapted dramatically. And we can't really call it now the nonprofit sector or the voluntary sector, which is what it was before then. It really has become the social sector. And now there's a hybridity in the kinds of organizations that are working. And quite marvelous changes in the way organizations, both for-profit and nonprofit, are working for social well-being, for public well-being. So that's sort of been the space I've been occupied as a researcher, writer, funder, yeah. academic, the whole nine yards. Yeah, Amazing. watching
0: that transition. And you see like the use of communities being thrown out a lot more in the enterprise world. Like, you know, myself, uh, you know, I've built communities of practice, uh, you know, for organizations and you see that. Do you think people, you know, why is it, it seems people have forgotten it for such a long time, but now it seems to be coming back into the picture, if you will. Is there, is there been like a a complete turnaround or or what do you see happening there?
1: Well, you know, in the years of I've been working since the days of being a hippie in community development school is community, mm-hmm. the view of community has come and gone a, a number of times in and out of favor. It's yeah. one of those sort of swings back and forth. Um, I think what we're seeing now might be a little bit different in that uh, the, the internet, the, the means of communications, interconnectivity that we have, Yep. Now allows us to connect beyond our geographic community. You know, you don't mm-hmm. get in your car and drive for an hour to a meeting so much anymore.
0: No. And
1: and we actually have global communities.
0: Yes. So
1: not only are there communities of practice, but there's global interest communities. Some of which are not so great, maybe. <laughs> you know. Yes. Um, but yeah, it, I'm really not sure that we will go back to that more linear way of thinking. Now, this this might have simply been an evolutionary step in how people imagine their world to be.
0: Right. And, and you're seeing some big themes, right? We'll get into like, what is social finance in a minute, but like, so okay. I think the, the some of the big overarching themes, you know, that you're seeing right now are, are very important and would be helpful for social finance, but as well as across a number of other areas. Can you unbox that a bit and go through what some of those big themes are that you're seeing?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I started thinking about the, the big shifts, um, when I started to understand globalism for the first time. Mm -hmm. And um, that sort of, the work, the writing I've done for years has been to track this big set of shifts. And there's an article I wrote once called Of Starlings and Social Change. And just because I had become fascinated by the way starlings move in the sky, those murmurations, And it became for me a metaphor for, you know, what I then understood was complexity theories of that we move out of, you know, physics into human organizing. And so all organizational development work, uh, that theory eventually arrives from scientific models. Right. Yes. Yes. So so really, we started the, the 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 Starlings were for me a way of focusing on how people work together differently. Mm-hmm. So we've seen across the social sector really an integration uh, or a, a collaboration starting to happen more and more. So as a funder, I had this wonderful view. It's like being on top of a tall pine tree, looking over the 401. You know, I had yeah. major big five, $600,000 initiatives, I had yeah. four, $4 million a year to invest in social good. Mm-hmm. And as did a number of others Um but what I started to notice is that first people would come in with, my my project's the best one, my idea's the best one, my enterprise is the best one. And I would say, well, what about Joe Schmoe's got something else kind of similar going on? Are you talking right. to him at all? No, no, don't know him. Don't pay attention to him. My, my organization <laughs> is the best one. And within the space of about a decade, that practice changed completely, partly because of confused funders like me saying, you know, well, how do I make that kind of decision? Right. Um, And instead we would see Joe Schmoe and that guy come in as a collaborative. And then we would see them convene their entire landscape. So if you're working in literacy, we would go from one literacy organization to the entire literacy landscape of organizations saying, this guy's good at this, this guy's good at this, what we really need more of is this. And it's it's much easier to flow money that way yes. uh, if, if you're a public funder. We saw that across the sector. Um, and we see it across communities now as you know, in some of the work that you and I have been engaged in.
0: Right. Yeah. And I think that, you know, it's nice to see that that collaboration is taking place because you you can have more impact because you have more alignment to bigger outcomes than the individual individualistic what's in it for me case, which, you know, obviously is, is very fragmented and very hard to, to really move change at scale.
1: Yeah. And I I'm sure, you know, we're seeing that in government and we're seeing it in, in business as well. These sort of, Mm -hmm. you know, what can we gain from, from someone else? And, The the best example, you know, Adam, that I've seen that crosses over the social sector and the business sector is through COVID. I don't know if you you watch at all the mask-making community, but using the internet, people all over the world uh, crowdsourced, um, mainly mainly women in the mask community because they're sewers, right? Crowdsourced the best uh, technology and the best... um, chains to, to supply chains to get those out to the places where they were needed most yeah. most of that you know you can buy a mask now but most of that was completely voluntary social sector stuff it, Navajo in the states need masks I got I got a bus load going you know send me your masks I'll go get them we'll get them there it was amazing amazing, amazing. to watch that
0: that's the social
1: cool. sector in action that's the starlinks
0: yeah that's very cool And so let's walk back a bit to social finance, because, you know, I brought it up at, you know, introductory piece, and it's a big piece of the conversation. But, you know, for for those who are not aware, you know, what what is social finance?
1: Yeah. So for sector watchers, um, it's one thing to watch how people organize, but it's another thing to know where the finances come from Mm -hmm. to be able to support that work. And so, as governments began to withdraw a bit or become, I think, really less reliable in terms of how money would flow and flow on time and what kind of requirements there were, yep. we started to see this sector adapting by looking to, not to government, but to the business sector. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, there was the rise of social enterprise probably was one of the earliest known sort of these business, morph businesses that were social benefit, but also for profit or not for profit, and, um, but had a business model. So that was really the start of it. And it's been no more than about 15 years, I think, since this whole business has been growing, where we start to um, look for sources of capital that are non-governmental and therefore uh, more flexible and under better, better control. Right. So Social Finance Task Force, um, we can put a link up to that, but that was about fifteen years ago, a Canadian task force that came out of um, uh, uh, a program called Social Innovation Generator that was a program funded by the McConnell Foundation to look at how we create more social innovation in Canada. Uh, its It was lodged at Mars, looking at more we how we create more business mm-hmm. innovation. Yeah. So that's yeah. And government started to get interested. Liberal government at that time, Jean Chrétien was interested. We looked at a social social uh, finance fund, all of which died on the drawing board uh, when Harper came in, and has been resurrected under Trudeau. Not particularly effectively, but there's a big fund out there to fund social finance. But what also happened is is nonprofits started to speak to business colleagues about. How do you work a bond? How do you work bond financing?
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How
1: do you how do you get a loan? Uh, because banks uh, will often not look at nonprofits, especially if they don't have equity. Um, and Grameen Bank in India was a good example that emerged. You know of, of yeah. small lending and the difference it can make. Um, yeah. So that was really the genesis of it, and it has become uh, many many more. I think you're going to. Put up the social finance primer,
0: yes. which is
1: sort of a collection of the ways business financing models—buying, buying, selling, and lending—have morphed into. Um, sorry, someone will get that in a sec. Have <laughs> have morphed into a, a source of capital for for nonprofits and social enterprises.
0: Yeah, and you know it's very interesting to see that it is on the rise right you see corporations that they're advertising that about their social responsibility and you know that they are you know starting to partner with organizations um you know do, do you think that there's actually going to be a growing it's going to grow because with COVID, everyone is obviously being very mindful of their finances there's been challenges uh, you know across the board everywhere from small medium enterprise all the way to large organizations are, are very um you know being very frugal with their their funds right now just given the nature of the situation around yeah. the world. H- how do you see things happening for twenty twenty one with regards to the you know the social finance? Are we going to see it you know be a pause like everywhere else, or are we going to actually see an influx because people are looking to be more yeah. focused on you know helping a- as a- as a community or helping as a country, right? And from an infrastructure perspective, um, versus the you know what's yeah. in it for me in the traditional capitalism.
1: Yeah, it's kind of neat, um, and you know to the extent that. You know, we we can move forward on these ideas of next economy, new economy, just economy, and so on. I yeah. think it really uh, will materialize because we've had this 15 or so years of looking at that hybrid space, that morph space between business and social sector. Mm-hmm. So not only um, in social finance, we talk about new sources of capital or, or different sources of capital for yeah. um, s- social social good. But business has come a long way on understanding what corporate meaningful corporate social responsibility is. So the whole exploration into B Corps and voluntary certification as a B Corp. Um, but but also uh, you know the sort of greenwashing accusations that came uh, some time ago. I think we're so far past that now. We're getting really meaningful thinking about how business support social, not just by donating. And I can give you a couple of examples there, recent examples if you want, sure. Mm -hmm. So uh, uh, a guy I have a huge respect for, Philip Haid, works with a company called Public Inc. Its sole MO is to help for-profit companies recognize how they can um, contribute to um, social value increase their yep. bottom line by by contributing to social value so it means a whole business sphere starting to to take shape there you now can go and get your flu shot at a pharmacy a for-profit pharmacy you can do that because of work of, of Philip paid guys guys like that who've mm-hmm. been able to under really underwrite the case for uh, for-profit uh, engagement in social yep. value Um, If you look at Home Depot right now, it it is cheaper for Home Depot to deposit returned goods in the community than it is for them to send them back to a central warehouse. They've teamed up with Habitat for Humanity. It's a really traditional organization that builds houses for people who can't get into the housing market. So they, they build houses, but what they for years had these retrofit stores called the Restores Yes, Uh, they branded. Yeah, yeah, they branded those. They take Home Depot's stuff uh, that it that it uh, returned product and they sell it then and use those funds for social good. So there's a whole host of models like that now that just have quietly sprung up in the landscape, Uh, not documented often anywhere, not put together so you can see the landscape.
0: Which is, which is kind of unfortunate, right? Like, it's great to hear these sort of stories. And, and you know, I, I've had other podcast episodes we did recently too, where we want to hear more of the, you know, the the local stories, if you will, or the, the, the wins. And the wins don't have yeah. to be massive in nature. Ideally, they could be, but it, it is, you know, it's celebrating the small wins. You kind of hear that saying all the time. But I don't think people do enough of it because if you get enough small wins, that creates um, a big moving force, if you will, that can really inspire or, or really, invoke change at yeah. scale that could happen, right? So I think it's great to hear, you know, some of those happen.
1: Yeah, yeah. well, and of course, funders, you know, have those landscape views. So you have a, a view out over what's going on and often corporations don't blow their own horns too much on this. Um, right, you know, and, and why,
0: why is that? Why, why aren't they like getting out and being like, yeah, we did this because to me, that would be a uh, huge for their brand, right?
1: I'm not sure the answer to that. I know some, you know, remember Tom's shoes, you buy a pair of shoes and and a pair Mm -hmm. of shoes is given away. So that was his whole brand. But I think these larger corporations actually get better value for in, in the quiet relationship building in, in community. And maybe it's better. I mean, obviously their PR is beyond, my scope of, of understanding, <laughs> sure. but but I think it's a goodwill measure. And I think there's something here to be known about genuine corporate social responsibility, building goodwill at the community mm-hmm. level. So yep. it's under, understood at that level. And for these big multinationals, having that kind of value across a bajillion communities is probably better than a brand byline.
0: Yeah, I hear you. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Now, you mentioned uh, lending before and a couple other areas where, you know, there's exploration around lending, um, some yeah. of the other, you know, sides of the coin. And you, you mentioned the primer, so we'll, we'll have the primer included for people to sure. to dig a little deeper. But, you know, there, there's purchasing and selling that go along with that. And so how, why is purchasing important from a social finance perspective? And as a consumer or as an individual or, or citizen within the community, how can someone be more mindful of that so that, yeah. Um, they, they can lend itself to, to into that level of social finance and sustainability. Sure. I, I, you know, we, we all started,
1: I don't know how many years ago, talking about buy local, right? So right. buy from yeah. your local farmers, market or local local food, that kind of thing. That The essence of that is now translating up into the big financial players in our communities, um, hospitals, universities, municipalities, schools. And so that the name for that, the name we've given to that is social procurement. And what it means is that when businesses are engaged in a procurement process, most often you're looking for the biggest bang for the buck, right? You're looking for a a price as big, but some of the more adventurous um, organizations have begun to develop procurement processes that benchmark social value in the community as well. Um, I'll just give you a, a quick illegal example. When I was working at Ryerson University, of course I was convening a lot of meetings and I have to have, right. I have to buy lunch. It was actually against the rules in a procurement process for me to buy from a social enterprise. And yet in Toronto, there are many, many small food, ethnic food organizations, that yes. um, many of which are nonprofits, That supply just the most fantastic food. Sure, yeah. Um, Yeah, for a reasonable cost, but also uh, used Ryerson's dollars essentially to create social value in employment or uh, many, many different kinds of ways in those small marginal communities. That was mm-hmm. against the rules, so we had to do that under the radar. Increasingly, what we're seeing the a big shift of organizations, uh, municipalities. I think are the next big buyers. I hope in this way, yep. where they con cons- consistently have a procurement policy that allows valuation of social value, social good. So sometimes I now we're seeing um, training in as part of the deal that the new Spadina subway, uh, the subway extension in Toronto, there's yeah. I believe a uh, 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 training and employment agreement as part of that procurement. Uh, in rural, smaller communities like us, you say that, like ours, you say social procurement, people often don't know what the words even mean. Right, yes. Uh, but I think the advantage might even be greater in smaller communities. For, for just narrowing the supply chain, localizing the supply chain and paying attention to social value.
0: And, and is there like a standard way to measure that? Like there's obviously there's indexes for everything and there's ways to measure it, but is there is there a concrete way to articulate that so that you can, because if it's not something that's well accepted or adopted now, but if there is a standard framework or index to measure it, then perhaps it makes it more more palatable for those looking to adopt it because People yeah. like to see things, right? People like to see yeah. that. that we, we talked about mapping the, uh, just the other day and it's nice to see a mapping. Does that exist for, for social procurement?
1: It's it's coming. Um, so two things. One, in terms of social procurement, we can refer people to um, a, a website by social
0: mm-hmm. and that
1: organization is doing the back end work on promotion of um, social procurement processes. And there's a, a, a guy, who's, David LePage, who's been at this work for a very, very long time um, in sitting behind that organization. Okay. So he's, he understands finance um, and he understands social finance very, very well. On the, on the flip side of that, there are organizations that are beginning to list in their community, the social enterprises that would be good per, good to purchase from Mm-hmm. So, uh, one of the big deals in Toronto as we started this work was, how do you find a, a social enterprise that's actually going to deliver? You know, if you're going to buy right. your conference kits from a local Afghani sewing group,
0: they're yeah. going to
1: supply the conference bags. How how can you be sure that they deliver? So, there's an intermediary uh, in some communities being formed to make that link. And the role of intermediaries is so, so important. And then the third area um, is, how do you measure Social well-being and community, right? Mm-hmm. And so the nonprofit sector, for a long time, nonprofit social voluntary sector, has been in a position of not being able to collectively measure social value. Uh, so when we aggregate effort and people begin to network, there can be agreements on outcomes that you can yep. measure. That's starting mm-hmm. to happen. The okay. Canadian the Canadian Index of Well-being is the biggest uh, hope right now and many funders are actually buying into a Canadian index of well-being outcomes developing funding measures for those so that at some point in the future you know how long this this all takes yes. we can actually um measure uh well-being in marginal communities for example
0: yeah and in, and and in, in some respects like some of the greatest things can't be measured as well right so it, it is one of those things where it's I'm sure there's part of it where it just won't be measured, but people will see the impact. It might not be a, a numerical piece, but you're going to see and feel the impact based on what's taking sure. place in the community.
1: So, in you know, in the field of community development, there's a lot of stuff that emerges. The field of innovation is, emerges, the good things emerge. You often don't know what you're going to measure until it's already happened. And then you can look back at it and say, gosh, I right. we wish we'd we'd measure that. Yeah. Um, yeah. But there, there are there are more and more creative measures of social well-being arriving on the landscape. Um, for sure, can can I give you a quick one?
0: Absolutely. Yeah. This is
1: an, an older measure, but I, it was absolutely brilliant. It's an oppression measure. Uh, Rama Casino was developed um, with uh, employ with with uh, on a First Nation, right? Rama First Nation. Yep. Mm-hmm. And so there was perhaps an understandable backlash. Um, unfortunately, to that. And people did not understand uh, the degree to which that casino was beginning to uh, contribute to local well-being, the the financial well-being of the community. And I think that's, you know, a whole lot of moral discussion around casinos and so on. But the measures piece I want you to hear. Yes, yes. Canada was just phasing out its $2 bills. And so for one pay packet... Every employee of Casino Rama was, employed, was paid in $2 bills. And oh, so anyone who sat in front of a cash register, stood in front of a cash register, could actually see those $2 bills flow through the economy in that community.
0: Very cool. That's so creative neat. measures. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> That's very interesting, very neat. Uh, and, and so that like that's a big piece. And you know, how can other people get involved with this? Because you know that was one of the challenges. You know, I'll admit that I, have uh, just recently in the last you know year started to become more involved with voluntary efforts and obviously with us with the institute. But how can somebody get involved in, or be more aware of this? Uh, even if you know if you can't be involved, at least become more aware of it, so that you're consciously either in your business you're 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 selling and looking to use B Corps or whatever, or if you're purchasing that. You know, you're, you're, you have that awareness to maybe ask how, how things are made or where it comes from or how it's done. Like, yeah. How can people become more intelligent in, in respect to, you know, the way they're working with organizations and communities?
1: I think, you know, it's a, it's a new field, right? So it begins like anything where we figure out how you do a social loan or how you do social procurement or how you buy local, those kinds of things. And then we've ag- begun to aggregate up the purchasing lending and and selling uh, parts of those mechanisms, but we're not at a place where excuse me that story's particularly well told publicly mm. or necessarily yeah. as easy to find. So if you work in toronto you you can find examples of um, a community bond that has purchased and enabled the building of 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 housing attainable housing for for women coming out of violence uh, owned by the the YWCA. But if okay. you live as, as we do in our smaller communities, people say mm-hmm. community bond? Well that's not really something a charity should be part of or a, right. a nonprofit should be part of. And actually in our community, yours and mine, when we started to talk about this more, I went back into the social finance community that I know well because I helped it develop it through as a funder through flowing funds there. And said would someone send me the best uh social finance primer around Mm. and i was a bit surprised to find out that i didn't get really good answers you know and so i i wrote the one that you're going to append to this uh, which is a a current um list of websites and instruments um, that people can gain gain access to really readily but it isn't, it's not a one-stop shop yet. It really has to, you right. have to do a bit of reading and, and research to find it.
0: Yeah, and I, I, the primer was really good for, like, cause I, and I, I have a printout, I, I'm reading it over again because it, it is, it spawns a bunch of different ideas and questions and areas that you can go study on it as well. So I think that'll be, you know, helpful for the audience and, you know, we can put that up there. Um, what are some other, you know, books that you would recommend? Um, you know, if it's not, a, it, it can be, primarily about social finance, but even just being more aware of, you know, sustainability in, this, in, the, in the social sector so that people can start to, you know, understand it better, understand how it can relate to them, the value it is for not only, you know, for their community and, and for, you know, the overall, let's, let's say Canada as, as an example.
1: You know, one of the, uh, I mean, hard to say they're gifts from COVID, but I think there are some ways of working that, emerging that we don't want to lose yeah. Um, and I what I see starting, just starting to happen, is these diverse parts of a social finance field are starting to cohere into language that helps us think about communities.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, so the whole bi-local, bi-social thing is starting to transcend into language like uh, the next economy or community wealth. Uh, so the next economy is a campaign that really is the next step away from the idea of a just economy or a green economy. Yeah. The next is that's a, an initiative of the Center for Social Innovation in Toronto. Um, and they're starting to do some lab work, which is, you know, a, a social innovation technology, social technology around critical issues like attainable housing. So there's there's a report coming up uh, shortly. I think it's not out yet on, on, um, financing attainable housing, which puts, you know, the, the interesting social adventures in housing together with the interesting social adventures on financing. Right. Um, so that would be one place I'm, I'm watching the next economy, um, move. And the, the next one would be David LePage's work on, um, what he calls a marketplace revolution. And he's just, just before Christmas put out uh, a book called marketplace revolution, which you can get from the bi-social folks. And he really talks about uh, moving from concentrated wealth to community capital. Mm. So really understanding, you know, a a rewrite of our capitalist understanding that people um, do well and, grow wealthy and then have wealthy families. And if we're lucky, they give back through uh, philanthropic actions at some point. Well, right. David's turning that one on his head, in, it, on its head in a really nice way, thinking about how doing well in community needs to also reflect, be reflected in, in community doing well and ideas of community capital. So it's a, it's a little more um, theoretical perhaps, but really far-seeing in how we mobilize social capital and community capital, so communities are in good shape, and and sort of connects to that idea that a, that a high tide floats all boats.
0: It, it seems that, like, uh, you know, education, and, and it's not an upscaling piece, but it's just an awareness and understanding is, is still a, a big gap. Um, so, like, so there's like education and then there's like enabling the action, right? Because once people understand it and they see the value of it, then it should enable action um, at a herd rate or at a scaled rate. Um, what are some ways that you think that, you know, things can be, I'm always about moving faster, but in yeah. you know, not always, but in many cases, but like wanting to see the action, right? There's always a lot of talk. And when, once yeah. you get into you hear a lot of, you know, theor- theoretical, but it's actually, how do we apply that? How do we get it moving? How do we actually enable people to, to start to really move towards that you know next economy or that 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 marketplace that you know david's talking about for example
1: yeah I, well i think it's happening i think the question is can we see where it's happening in our communities and put ourselves there mm-hmm. so you know uh, so the first answer i had when you asked the question initially was a crisis we'll do it you know a yeah. crisis, crisis will move people towards more invention. And
0: mm-hmm. I know
1: in my own work practice, one of the things that I'm most interested in right now is harvesting the lessons of COVID. What, mm-hmm. what can we do now that we couldn't do before? Right. Um, and one of those things I've heard, I've heard a number of organizations say, well, we talked about that for years, but then we just had to do it. We just yes. had to
0: do it. Yes. Right. Do do it and ask for forgiveness later.
1: (laughs) Yeah, 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 that's right. And if it doesn't work, well, we'll change it. Like none, none of this, a lot of this has to do with the ability to pivot and comfort in in pivoting and building organizations that can read community and pivot with community for collective collective benefit. So for me I get a chuckle out of it after a while because it feels like going back to those old 1960s, 70s principles of yeah. you know collective collective good and, and community development. So for me I answer that question by focusing almost exclusively on what creates engagement right now. Because mm-hmm. people people know what needs to happen. How do we engage a, a people in conversations that help? build that understanding. And part of that is to build diversity into those conversations. So, you know, probably from the business world and certainly in the social innovation world, one of the key tenets is if you're thinking with the same people all the time, you're having the same thoughts.
0: Yes, yes.
1: So as a community facilitator, I am always facilitating for difference in opinion, for difference in who's in the room, for amplifying marginal voices that are there because they know stuff and innovation often comes, you know, from the margins in towards the center. So there's something very tied in here with the black lives matter movement, with the indigenous Mm -hmm. land back movement, with being able to listen to the narratives of communities that may not be at the center of our business practices.
0: And do you think that, you know, with, with regards to diversity and, and regards to the, you mentioned the, the ability to pivot, um, because obviously there's, with with enabling more diversity, there's obviously a, a learning exercise, if you will, for people to better understand what needs to happen, understanding other people's perspectives, um, and not just understanding it, but actually applying it, utilising it. Um, do you think there's a notion of, because in the entrepreneurial world, there's the, always the, the fail fast, let's fail fast so that we can figure it out, so we can continuously improve and then we get to product market fit, or we get to you know, the the service ideal, you know, customer experience, you find that communities are going to start to adopt that, um, that allows them to essentially improve, um, you know, much faster and to to iterate much faster. Yeah,
1: totally. You know, in the social innovation field, we had a conference now, it must be three years ago, um, because in part, um, people started to notice that most of the innovation funding was going to, uh, people of a white color and often right. men. Right. Um, and yet there are many pretty terrific innovations and much needed innovations coming out of communities of color uh, right. who had deep, deep knowledge of what needed to happen in those communities, but access to capital, you know, was a problem. And so there was this marvelous conference. I thought it was marvelous conference. Not everyone thought it was marvelous that really put a lot of very diverse f- voices at the front of the room. And shook people up. It shook the narrative that many of us were creating about, you know, how innovation was going to save the world and stuff. And mm. and some people went away mad. and Some people went away burned. But I tell you, I've never seen a community pivot as fast
0: oh, that's amazing. <laughs> towards
1: support for diverse issues. Um, and so it's certainly in in our our you know within driving distance of where we live, uh, social innovation is no longer a white male bastion that, that yeah. it was even as short as five five years ago. Oh, wow. So, yeah, there. I think there has to be, I think often it comes to basic skills. You sit with the discomfort, you yeah. invite people, first of all, like do it, just invite them. I'm, I'm coaching a team right now and, they, and they, they know they have to get the LGBTQ folks in. They know they have to have the First Nations folks in. So they want a strategy for how to do that. Yep. Uh, the strategy from a coaching perspective is you call them up and invite them to the first meeting and see what happens. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and, and boy, did it make a difference. You know, we had two very different narratives on that particular field than we'd had before. Um, and then the comfort starts to build. And,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, listening, listening carefully, not speaking, listening, just not speaking, listening is a really... <laughs> important (laughs) skill uh particularly as we move to zoom
0: yes well and i think that's a a big piece because a lot of times you know uh, people listen to them talk again right and and they're not truly listening and communication has been dubbed one of the biggest problems not only in business but period in the world because there's just so many forms of it obviously anything from culture to dialects to but listening is a part of communication and most people don't listen (laughs) Well,
1: that's right. And so I found myself actually training on listening, which is, as I learned myself, you know, and some of the folks I was working with, certainly in the anti-violence movement, were into um, uh, sort of empathic listening or active listening, you know, where you you hand the Kleenex, you nod frequently, whatever comes out of a therapeutic world.
0: Yes, yes.
1: But so much harder is what I call attentive listening. And it's very fun to train up in a room about this. In attentive listening, you have one person telling a story and one person who may do nothing but listen. Do not nod. Do not reach for the Kleenex. Do not smile. Do not do anything. Just listen. And so when you do the debrief on that, and you ask people what it felt like to tell a story. I was great. You know, oh my God. I, I began to think through my own understanding of this by telling the story. And when you ask the listeners how it was, it was so uncomfortable. They thought they were going to die. And <laughs> never has that five minutes been so long before. But they get it. They well, never that- listen the same way again.
0: That's very interesting. You say that because like, I, like, as we're talking here, I'm nodding and like, yup, every little bit. And I'm like the thought of me not doing any of that. Like, it's, it's like you're entering a meditative state and just listening. And, yeah. and that's very hard. Like most people can't sit for 30 seconds or a couple minutes to meditate. Um, and essentially you're doing that because you're blocking everything out and you're hyper focused to that, but with no action, just yeah. absorb it all. So that would be, that would be very challenging. And that's, that an, very challenging.
1: that's a norm in our culture, right? Our, our dominant Western culture. Mm-hmm. I w- worked with, um, I was consulting in a First Nation organization that was in a terrible conflict now quite a number of years ago. And uh, an elder came and joined us. Mm. And when an elder speaks in the First Nations gatherings that I've been part of, at any rate, not to say everything is the same. No one speaks while the elder speaks. And this particular elder spoke for two hours. Wow. And the rest of us listened. And there, there was a kind of magic happened there, which I don't think is always true in that scenario. But the, the light bulb came on for me, how often I listen to prepare what I'm going to say next. So I've got a parallel thing going on. And if we can allow ourselves to just listen tolerate the silence while the other guy pauses to compose the response, and then speak, listen to to the other guy speaking, communication changes dramatically. So anyway, that's one of the things I think is a top line skill for seeing what's coming next.
0: I would agree. And I, I think that's amazing. I, I really like that story. It resonates a lot, so much. So I, I think that's a great place to, to close us off for today. <laughs> um, Mar- Marilyn, did you have anything else you would like to add that you feel would be you know, advantageous or important for, for the audience to to get a better grasp on you know any of the topics we've discussed today?
1: Only to sort of sum up and say, as I see my sector that I know, the social sector becoming mm-hmm. more entrepreneurial, I see the business industry sector becoming more socially conscious right and and I think none, no one has this playbook nailed that really it's a time for creative invention, and that is so exciting you know we don't we can't tell our stories properly yet, but they're out there they're out yeah. there now, and I think um, exploring in connection. <clears throat> It's absolutely the way this will go forward.
0: Amazing. I love it. That sounds amazing. All right, Marilyn, thank you so much for joining us today. Appreciate your time and all of your insights and wisdom. Um, All the information that you noted with books and links, we'll make sure are in the show notes, Um, is a best place for people to find you. Sorry, I almost forgot that. Um, Do you have a particular um, either Twitter, like social media that you use or website email um, that is best for people if they want to get in touch with you?
1: Yeah, email's best. mstruthers
0: at ryerson.ca all right we will make sure that is in uh the show notes as well um again thank you so much uh for today really appreciate it look forward to having more conversations with you um and that's it all right thanks thanks Thanks, adam it was fun okay everyone that's a wrap thank you so much for joining us today we always appreciate our listeners tuning in and listening the ways of working podcast if you would like to learn more about ways of working including all previous podcast episodes please go to www.thack.ca so that's t-h-a-c-k.ca where you can find all of our podcast episodes as well as there's blogging and other articles and we would love to hear your feedback so please uh, provide that whenever possible we always greatly appreciate it so thanks so much everyone